Thank you for being a believer. And it is indeed true that that God believes in us as well. I don't think um, God would send God's Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth if, if He didn't believe in us. Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Kind of an odd little parable that Jesus speaks here today. Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a servant who managed his property. The rich man was told that the manager was wasting his master's money. So he called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in a complete account of your handling of my property because you cannot be my manager any longer. The servant said to himself, my master is going to dismiss me from my job. What shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, and I'm ashamed to beg. Now I know what I will do. Then, my, then my, when my job is gone, I shall have friends who will welcome me into their homes. So he called in all the people who were in debt to his master. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, 100 barrels of olive oil. He said to him, here is your account. Sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another one, and you, how much do you owe? He replied, a thousand bushels of wheat. He said to him, here is your account. Make it 800. As a result, the master praised him for doing such a shrewd thing. Because the people of this world are much more shrewd in handling their affairs than the people who belong to the light. And Jesus went on to say, And so I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it is gone, you will be welcome in the eternal home. This is the word of God for you and me. Some of you may have read a remarkable short story sometime uh, during your school years by D.H. Lawrence. The title of the short story was The Rocking Horse Winner. If you read it, do you remember how it begins? It's a haunting tale about a family living above its means. The mother is considered by friends and neighbors to be the perfect mother, in spite of the fact that deep down she knows that she has a difficult time loving her three children. And it's important for the husband to keep up the pretense of success. The large house staffed with servants, but they're living right on the edge of financial ruin like many families today. Listen as D.H. Lawrence describes this family's life situation. The house came to be haunted by the unspoken phrase, there must be more money. There must be more money. The children could hear it all the time, though nobody spoke it out loud. They heard it at Christmas when the expensive and splendid toys filled the nursery. Behind the shining modern rocking horse, behind the beautiful doll's house, a voice would start whispering, there must be more money. There must be more money. And the children would stop playing to listen for a moment 
They would look into each other's eyes to see if all had heard, and each one saw in the eyes of the others that they too had heard. There must be more money. There must be more money. It came whispering from the springs of the still swaying rocking horse, and even the horse bending his wooden champing head heard it. The big doll sitting so pink and smirking in her new pram could hear it quite plainly and seemed to be smirking all the more self-consciously because of it. The foolish puppy, too, that took the place of the teddy bear, he was looking so extraordinarily foolish for no other reason but that he heard the secret whisper all over the house. There must be more money. There must be more money. That's the family backdrop to the story of the rocking horse winner. Quite an extraordinary picture, isn't it? There must be more money. There must be more money. I wonder if there are homes in our community today that are haunted in that same way. I want us to talk a little bit this morning about financial freedom. Jesus said on one occasion, no servant can have two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here is our challenge for today. We want to break the grip that money has on our lot. We want to affirm that Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is our God and our only God. And we want to affirm that the God who manifested God's self in Jesus of Nazareth is our God. Because this is who we are. And this is why we are here in this room today. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We studied a few weeks ago as we began our Wednesday Bible study on the Ten Commandments. We want God to be our only God and not our material possessions. Yet still, we live in a materialistic society, don't we? And fairly or unfairly, people will judge us by our possessions. And it costs so much just to live these days, doesn't it? And yet, we know that most of us don't need everything that we have, much less everything that we want. And for many of us, that troubles us. Like the rich man who God called a fool, we keep needing bigger and bigger garages and storage areas to hold all of our stuff. And so how do we extricate ourselves from this vicious cycle of more, more, more. Well, let's begin right here by noting that Jesus was not anti-money. I know that some people might hear some of the things that Jesus says and, and may come to the conclusion that he's against all things physical and all things material and, and monetary, but that's not the case. He understood the place of money in our lives. 
In fact, Jesus told this strange little parable about the manager who was accused by his boss of wasting, wasting the boss's possessions. And so the boss came to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you can't be my manager anymore. So here he was. He's given notice. And he wondered, what in the world will I be able to do? And, and by the way, folks, if you ever find yourself in a situation like this, I don't recommend doing the same thing that this manager did. Because the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? The master is taking my job away, and, and I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, and, and I'm too ashamed to beg. So, so he said, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their homes. And so, so he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? The first debtor replied, 800 gallons of olive oil. And the manager said, take your bill and make it. 400. Second debtor, how much do you owe? And he replied, a thousand bushels of wheat. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. It seems that this manager spent the last few days of his employment defrauding his employer of thousands of dollars. And how do you imagine the employer responded to this? Did he cuss him out? Did he have him arrested? No. To the contrary, the employer commended the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. Now, I have to wonder if some of these debtors may have been deadbeats. Maybe they were usually very slow in paying their bills, or maybe they didn't pay them at all. And so maybe what the business owner was praising him for was, being able to collect anything at all. But Jesus didn't explain this. He kind of left us hanging there. And, and he doesn't need to explain this because a parable is not a perfect story with each part having a significant impact on the message of the parable. In fact, a parable usually has only one point to it. And Jesus explains the point, the one point of this parable when he says this. He says, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You hear that? Use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves. Jesus seems to be saying that there's a place for money in our lives. And there is. Indeed, I think it would be foolish to imagine that we could get along without money in a society like ours. It just can't be done. As we've noted before, there are some things that only money can buy. Pay for health care, for example. There are a lot of people these days in our society who are facing a crisis because they either can't get or can't afford a decent health insurance policy. You're 50 years old and diabetic and laid off from your job. Just try to find an insurance company that will cover you at any price. And I guarantee you that if you could find one, you couldn't afford it. So you see, there's some things that only money can do. Put a roof over our heads and food in our stomachs. Fill our cars with gas. Try to do that without money. It's impossible. 
So you see, there is a place for money in our lives. And, and Jesus knew that. He was a very practical man, and he knew that there are some things that only money can do. However, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that we're in deep trouble if money has first place in our lives. Because the fact is that money is a nice servant, but it makes a terrible master. When the body of, a, of an 18-year-old young man was found in New York City's Central Park, police at first thought it was a murder, but an investigation revealed that the young man had actually committed suicide. He was from a wealthy family in Connecticut, had received every advantage and every material possession that one could imagine, from the silver spoon that he was born with to the silver tray that he was served on to the silver Porsche that he left in the parking lot of Central Park. But evidently, what this rich young man had never had was the joy and the meaning of life for which he yearned so deeply. One of the investigators concluded that this young man's suicide was the result of a modern disease of the soul, which he called affluenza. Affluenza. Think about that term, folks. It is affluence turned into a disease. There must be more money. There must be more money. Now, it's easy to see the worship of money in the lives of some folks. Misers, for example. You hear the story of an elderly couple who dies of malnutrition and authorities investigating the deaths find $40,000 in cash tucked away in a closet. Somehow their sense of values had gotten turned on its head. A woman dies leaving an estate of $100 million, and yet her son has one of his legs amputated because she has delayed treatment for a serious injury while she searches for a free clinic. Folks, when something like this happens, the need for money becomes a sickness. And, and that's easy for us to see in people like, the, like this who are, who are misers. Their values are terribly skewed. And their money has become their God. It's also easy to see in thieves. Claude Locher of, of Orleans, Massachusetts, showed, showed such charm and, and inspired such trust as a stockbroker and as a financial manager and planner that dozens of retired folks and elderly widows invested their life savings with him. This 34-year-old gentleman seemed to be the model of professionalism, but suddenly in December of 1991, Loche disappeared. Well, at first, foul play was suspected, but then it was learned that $1.7 million was missing from his, his client's accounts. And then Loche's van was found in the parking lot of Kennedy Airport with, with stubs for airplane tickets to Paris inside. Embezzlement and larceny charges were brought against him, but he was nowhere to be found. And, and meanwhile, Loche's elderly clients were left with huge losses, most who had invested through Loche's 
uh, firm was, were living on fixed incomes and, and, and modest pensions. But then finally, through one of those most wanted television programs, he was located in Los Angeles and arrested in February of 1992. None of the money was found. Not a dime. And when the Los Angeles detective Carl Holstrom asked Loche why he stole $1.7 million from his clients, he showed no remorse at all. And his only comment was, everybody does it. My folks, that's a value system of a person who worships money. And it's easy to spot in the lives of misers and thieves, but, but what about us? Could we also be worshiping our money as well and not even be aware of it? A church member came to his pastor's study one day, and the pastor could see that the man was in, in a bad way. He was deeply troubled. And the man said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I feel so empty. I feel so dried up inside, and I'm scared. His voice began to quiver a bit, and he said, Pastor, I've just come from my doctor's office. He told me I only have about six months to live. And after I left his office, I, I realized that I have no spiritual resources. I have no inner strength to, to cope with this. There's nothing to fall back on, nothing to lean against. And I know that many people would be surprised to hear me say that because I've made a lot of money in my life. And, and people think that I'm a success not only in making money, but at being a strong and powerful person as well. Then he fell quiet for a moment, and the pastor waited in silence for him to go on. The man finally said, you know, I'm poor in the things that count the most. I realize that now. I've put my faith in the wrong things, and the truth is that I am destitute, spiritually destitute. I could pick up a phone right now and call any bank in, in town and borrow any amount of money that I want to, to do anything that I want to do, just on my name, Reverend, just on my name. And then the man leaned forward and put his head in his hands, and he said softly through his tears, I guess there are some things that you get, just can't buy or borrow. And he's right, isn't he? This man's material bank was full to overflowing, but his spiritual bank was empty. And I hope that that is not your situation this morning. If it is, then you may be serving mammon instead of God. You may need to address that. At least the dishonest steward understood that money is a means. It's not an end. And that's something we all need to understand. Money is a means and not an end. He didn't take his money, his boss's money for himself, and he didn't hoard it up. He used it. He used it to buy favor with his friends because he didn't want to be all alone and unemployed in a harsh world where, where people were fortunate if they had any kind of employment at all and could make any kind of living at all. And so the really big question that our scripture for today raises for us is this. Do you own your money, or does your money own you?
There's the question. Do you own your money? Or does your money own you? And I think it's a very important question to be considered, especially in light of our materialistic society today. 18th century evangelist John Wesley understood the spiritual struggles that many people have with the place of money in their lives. In fact, this was kind of an irony in his ministry because, because you see, the, the Wesleyan revivals were so successful that they were turning people, many of whom had serious drinking problems, and these revivals were turning them into sober-minded, hard-working, responsible individuals. In fact, some of Wesley's converts became so successful that they began to let their commitment to Jesus Christ slide. And they had allowed their success and their, their affluence to become their God. And so in reality, they were just as lost as they were before Jesus had come into their lives. But now they were only lost and wealthy instead of lost and drunk. And so what was Wesley's solution? He saw only one. That they should earn all they could, that they should save all they could, and, they should, and that they should give all they could. Let me put that formula in present tense because it's a good one. Earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Now, a lot of people today can do the first one. They're very good at earning all that they can, but they fall short with saving and thus with giving because they spend all they make and there's nothing left to give. And others can do number one and two. They, they earn a lot and they save a lot, but they don't give very much because they can't bring themselves to, to turn it loose, to let it go. And, and why is that? It's because money has taken over first place in their lives. Someone else has given us another formula that has blessed millions of people down through the centuries. And here it is. If you want to have true financial freedom, learn to live on 80% of your present income. Take 10% of your income and invest it. Take the other 10% and give it to God. 80%, 10%, 10%. needs, investment for the future, being rich towards God. And what does this do for us? Well, it ensures that money has its proper place in our lives. And, and if you follow it, most of us will have plenty enough to live on. And we'll also lock, uh, look forward to a secure retirement. But most importantly, you are saying that God is in control of your life. And no more will you hear that chant in your house. There must be more money. There must be more money. My friends, if you follow this example and this principle, you will own your money. And your money will not own you. And even more important than that, you will have treasure laid up for yourselves in heaven. And let me tell you something. That is an investment that will yield eternal returns.
And that's a wonderful blessing to have if we will only follow these examples and these principles and know that our money is not our God. Our God is our God. And we need to own our money and not vice versa. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of response, number 282, Living for Jesus. And that's what we're called to do is to live for Jesus. I'm afraid that in many of our lives we live for much other, many other things other than Jesus. And sometimes these things take priority in our lives and they shouldn't. God is our God, not our possessions. God has blessed us with possessions to be used for our own good and for the good of others. But God is our God. And maybe this has become skewed in your own life and you need to get that straight with the Lord today. Perhaps you've never made a commitment to the God who blesses us with all that we have. Perhaps you need to make that commitment today. Maybe you're looking for a church home to be a part of. We invite you to come and unite with us today as we sing together number 282, Living for